It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. Dr. Joe Deturi, Commander, U.S. Navy Retired, has amassed a broad array of knowledge and experiences both during his 28-year Navy career and afterwards. He now goes by Dr. Deep Sea. While in the Navy, he spent considerable operational time in the depths of the oceans with the Special Operations Community and other diving assignments. After leaving the military, he earned a PhD in biomedical engineering and turned his focus to the physiological aspects of undersea research. He's also the author of Secrets in Depth, a bit of fiction that leverages his extensive experience in the deeps of the world's oceans. So Joe is currently involved in a 100-day stay at the Jules Undersea Lodge, an underwater research facility located off of Key Largo, Florida, where he's performing medical research and technical development, as well as ocean conservation work. Joe was kind enough to take a break from his busy schedule and chat with us from 30 feet underwater about his experiences and his passion for research and discovery. So, Joe, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. There is so much to talk about. I have no idea how we're going to get through it all in half an hour or so that we have to talk with you, but uh, it's going to be fun. I agree. Thank you guys for having me. and Thank you for the privilege. So, Yeah, well, look, Joe, we do like to start at the beginning uh, with all of our guests. So let me ask you, what got you interested in diving and undersea, and how did that lead you to the U.S. Navy? So I did a flashback to the... 70s, probably 77. I was about uh, 10 years old. Uh, my dad had a boat that was just too big to pull out of the water. So he asked me to go underneath with a mask on and try and take this zinc tab off the bottom of the boat. But try and hold my breath, try and hold my breath. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. He was like, all right, hold on, stay right there. And then he fits this backpack over the shoulder with just a strap on the waist and a double hose regulator. And he's like, uh, okay, just keep breathing. Then he goes, wait, 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 just don't hold your breath. So I go underwater and I'm breathing underwater. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Now I'm in a canal in New York, right? So it's not like it's like the, oh, I'm in, you know, the Bahamas looking at fish. I'm on the Great Barrier Reef. No, I'm in a canal in New York. And, you know, there's like dishes over here and had some junky things, you know, shopping carts, whatever. <laughs> but I'm underwater and I'm like, this is amazing. So from that point on, I just like I, I would cut school and yeah, it was just I'd bad. I just dive every chance I can get. And I was just diving in the canals. Why? Because I didn't know. I didn't know any better at all. Right. So I just diving in the canals. And then I dove off the beach one day and the lifeguard's like, what are you doing diving off the beach? There's nothing out here. I'm like, they're fish it's so cool <laughs> and i can see a little bit <laughs> yeah so uh that didn't necessarily get me in the navy but this uh this thirst for wanting to go do something near the water got me in the navy i uh you know believe it or not i didn't do very well in high school i was uh, not paying attention very well and didn't do well on standardized testing so didn't have a lot of options. So I went down to the recruiter and I went to the Marine Corps recruiter. My mother said, <laughs> try again. You're 17. I'm not signing the papers. I said, but mom, I want to go 
be all I can be in the Marines or whatever the saying is. She said, nope, you're going in something that's going to give you an education. I said, okay, how's the Navy? They want to make me a nuke. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. My mom's like, yep, too enthusiastic, thumbs way up. You can go in. So went in. And then from that point on, it was like, oh, wow, there are lots of different cool jobs in the Navy and I want to go do something cool. So long and the short of it was uh, I, I, I wrecked a motorcycle during nuclear power school and I, I washed out of that uh, because, you know, you can't be a nuke and have eczema. And I apparently had eczema. So I offered me my choice of any school in the Navy. And then, you know, long story short, I, uh, I found my way to a place called Submarine Medical Research Lab as just an enlisted kid. And I'm watching all this saturation diving stuff and I'm watching all of this great work being done. And I'm like, I want to be that guy. And I pointed at Captain Claude Harvey. I want to be that guy. He relieved Captain George Bond on his last watch in the Navy. And I said, I want to be that guy when I grow up. Earned a commission out of there. And sure enough, special operations officer. And then. Okay. Yep. That's why I was curious how you got into the special ops pipeline, because you didn't know that you wanted to do that. So you just kind of fell into it because you happened to get into the saturation diving, which sounds like it was perfect because it leveraged your love of diving, didn't it? It leveraged the love of diving. And like I said, I was still, I was still diving. I was diving at night. I was now I'm diving for lobsters at that point, right? Because I'm in Groton, Connecticut and I'm diving for lobsters. It was neat. So we'll get into kind of what you're doing now here in a little bit. But first I want to ask you about, you know, tell us about the, if you can, the diving you did as part of the special operations community, you know, how deep, what lessons did you learn? What risks did you have to manage in that slice of the profession? When I went in there, I became a mixed gas diving officer. Uh, you know, I learned the deep aspects of diving. The whole while I'm doing civilian diving while I'm out there. So I'm stationed in Hawaii. I'm at Mobile Diving Salvage Unit 1. And we're doing diving, salvage, you know, uh, pulling stuff off the beach, that kind of thing. Real like hoo -yah stuff, right? And that was all well and good. Uh, and at that point, uh, I said, hey, look, we got we to gotta do something different here because I don't see a lot of future in this spec ops community because there there were 13 captains at the time. Admiral, you get this. There's 13 captains at the time running the community and there wasn't an admiral. So this was pre 9-11. Obviously, there was 1997, 8, 9. I did a second tour on a salvage ship, Salvor. And then before you know it, I was like, OK, uh, you guys got to get your stuff together. So I moved to the engineering duty diver community from there. And that was where I was really exposed to real diving and engineering principles and, and that type of thing. So, you know, you found that the supervisor of salvage and diving was actually an engineering duty officer diving position, not a special operations diving position. So I got a little bit of diving salvage experience, you know, uh, two or three tours, three tours in, uh, in uh, diving stuff. And then I came and I brought that to the engineering duty officer community. And it was like, oh, yeah, now I'm running with scissors. So so what kind of dives do you do as an engineering duty officer? And what kind of tasks were the most challenging with that? Because that's completely different than what you're doing before, right? It, it is. So most of what I did before, most of what a Navy diver does is underwater ship's husbandry. So that type stuff, that's where I spent a lot of hours. But I also did salvage of materials, salvage of, you know, uh, an airplane that went down, salvage of a, a ship that went down. So when you become an engineering duty diver, 
you do more of the thinking aspect of that particular dive. So here you are, you're doing salvage calculations on what it's going to take to pull that ship off the beach, how much it's going to take to raise that ship up off the bottom or that aircraft up off the bottom or where the lifting points are and that kind of thing. So generally speaking, the same kind of work, but then there was that one job in the Navy, right? That one job where I'm at the National Reconnaissance Office doing my pre-tour, like I'm going to go there. And I got the call from the guy that was in charge at Deep's Emergence Unit. And he said, Joe, you are the heir apparent. And I said, no, 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 no. I got to do a payback tour. I'm going to the National Reconnaissance Office. I'm out here house hunting TAD right now. And he said, nope, we already fixed that. You are coming and you're going to be in charge at Deep's Emergence Unit. And I'm like, needs of the Navy. (laughs) (laughs) So that job turned out to be the best job I've ever done in the Navy. I got to fly a one atmosphere suit. Uh, I got to, you know, replace the DSRV Mystic with the pressurized rescue module and, you know, have the McCann rescue chambers. And that, you know, that was like hoo-yah of hoo-yah, right? So it was the mishing of the engineering duty background and all of the calculations of being in charge. And then the go ahead and do great diving things and have fun and do international engagements. So yeah, I, I smiled a lot during those three years. So, so Sandra pulled from somewhere that um, while you were at the deep submergence unit uh, in that great job, you, your team won an award for excellence and, and certified a 2000 foot of seawater atmospheric diving system, which scares the living daylights out of me because I can't imagine diving at 2000 feet. So tell us about that project and the kind of risks you had to manage doing that. That's, that's not trivial, right? All right. That is absolutely true. So uh, that suit was designed by hard suits and originally Phil Newton. So it was called the Newt suit back in the day. And I've known Phil because of the underwater realm and the engineering duty officer realm. I'd known this guy for, you know, probably 10 years by this point. Now, all of a sudden, I'm flying up to Vancouver to talk with him about the equivalence principle and the the ability for the suit to not collapse in on you. So I learned some great engineering principles. I learned about risk mitigation and risk management. And, uh, you know, you're flying a suit that is made out of blocks of aluminum that are milled out. So all those blocks of aluminum were milled out and then fastened together with these joints that have knife edges that will seal and close and it won't let them turn if it's not working correctly. So the whole time you're you're leaning against Man 10 P9290, which is the Navy standard for, oh my gosh, we got to keep these guys alive. And basically everything in that manual is written in blood. And I mean, they say that, but that is the honest truth, right? All that stuff is written in blood. So you're adhering to everything that's in that realm, but you're mixing it with a civilian commercial off-the-shelf product. And now you're trying to push these two together. Oh boy, the rubber met the road there. And we did a lot of head banging with the engineers at NAVC. And I'm like, I think it's safe enough. And they're like, we don't think you understand. And I'm like, well, maybe I do a little bit. <laughs> so Risk mitigation became a, uh, a you know, uh, an every other day word for me. So did you, did you test that suit at depth without somebody in it to make sure it was working or? So that was standard protocol. Uh, we'd test it and anytime we did work on it, we'd assemble it, test it, and we'd send it down to uh, 2,500 feet, almost 2,500 feet, a little less than 2,500 feet. And it's good to 2,000 feet. So that one time that I almost got fired when we tied the arms together because there is nobody in the suit 
And I sent it all the way down to 2,500 feet and I flooded the suit because the joints couldn't squeeze together. So there was a rope around it. So I couldn't let the joints squeeze together. I flooded the suit and I was like, and you know, when I took over, the, the guy before me, Commander Lenhart, Keith Lenhart, he said, hey, listen, every day I look in the mirror on this ship and I think, is this the day that I'm going to kill somebody? And I was like, oh, I took over. I took charge. And I'm like, yeah, I got it. I got it. And then I looked in that mirror and I was like, Whew. and you know, right? It's, it's heavy. <laughs> heavy as the mantle of command, right? So every day. And when I flooded that suit, that was a real like, okay. You better start thinking things through even more than you're already thinking them through. You're being paid to use your brain. You better do all this work. So I got into the uh, 882, the mill standard 882, which is operational risk management. And I ate that thing for breakfast. So I was just like mill standard 882 applied to everything, uh, operational risk matrix, decision-making authority, who can do what, who can make what decisions. And it was really a good thing because my team was like, they were all on board because it gave them the latitude and the stuff in this corner. But I reserved the right for the stuff in this corner to be my decision. So they liked it. I liked it. But you put the decision in the hands of the people that you believe can make the decision. So that was kind of fun. And, and that's how you avoid change of command without band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> I have to ask, you know, we had all kinds of contingencies in our back pockets when we were doing the stuff they were doing. What kind of contingencies in your back pocket if you're 2000 feet underwater in a hard suit and something goes wrong? So the backup plan is to launch the other hard suit. And, you know, when I took over, we hadn't even been through Opival. We hadn't been through any of that stuff. Right. So I'm taking this over. We're doing the operational evaluation. We're looking at it for readiness. So I was the first person to launch two suits in the water and to practice and establish and make the OPs, EPs, and CPs, the operational procedures, casualty procedures, and emergency procedures. So I was the guy writing all those because I was like, okay, what would I want if I was the guy in the suit? You know, I would want somebody to come down here and rescue me. So how are we going to do that? What are the things we have to put in place? So, you know, you're working with the engineers at NAVC and everybody else. I don't want to think that it was just me, but I got the bottom line, a lot of that stuff. So my hands all over that. So I'm going to ask a, a question like that may sound like a dumb question, but I know my audience is probably asking the same things. Like, why do you need a suit? where a person can go down to 2,000 feet? Why not just use a deep submergence vehicle with little arms on it and things like that? What kinds of things would you do? Why do we rule the world? Everybody says it's the opposable thumb, but it's not. The opposable thumb is not it because otherwise lobsters would rule the earth, right? Because they have huge opposable, <laughs> right? What it is is <laughs> our ability to prehense. Now, I don't know if I can do this, but prehensing is going from one to the other to the other, right? So that's our ability, right? Our ability to go from finger to finger to finger. So you need that ability and that dexterity when you're at depth. You need that, in Joe's opinion, you need the person in the suit to go, I have my crooked eye on that because you're staring myopic vision, singular eye with a camera that's here looking at something and you're trying to do this little turning, it's, it, it's just inefficient and ineffective. So person in the suit uh, is my opinion. You need that person eyes on target, right? It's like, why don't we fly aircraft by, you know, just drone? <laughs> so I have to, I have to ask this question because the, the gloves in our EV, our spacewalking suits are bulky because it's pressurized suit, right? And, and they're bulky and they can be very tricky to work with. 
how do you manage the gloves and the, the human interface like that at 2,000 feet where the pressure and you're in a hard suit? How do you do that? Right. So you're in a hard suit. So you have these manipulators. You're working the manipulator. You learn to become an expert at manipulating your hands through this pressure uh, seat. It, it's hard. It's hard at best. On a good day, it's hard. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost impossible. When you start flying the suit, let me give you a for instance. The way that we train pilots in the suit, just like in the old days, you saw men of honor, how they ripped open the bag and they threw the nuts and bolts on the floor. We took a knot, uh, a rope with knot on it, and then we put washer, you know, washer, nut, washer, nut, washer, nut. We undid it, dumped all the washers and nuts in the pool, and then threw the rope in the pool. You had to go fly over in the suit, go grab the rope, tie a knot in the bottom, then get a washer, put it on, then get a nut, put it on, then get a washer and put it on, then get a nut and put it on, and and then tie a knot in the end. And you did not come up until you were done. Maximum time in a suit is eight hours. So wow, <laughs> you get good at becoming dexterous with this this little set of equipment. So and you have to. Yeah, interesting. A little different from one of those like circus things where you you manipulate the little hook that goes down and grabs the little teddy bear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not quite the same thing. No, sir. Obviously, you had operators in these suits, and you just told us a little bit about the dexterity training, but but how much training do, do you have to have before you can actually? I mean, it's got to be more than that, right? There, you have to understand the laws of physics underwater. I mean, just like any other qualification in the military, I would sit the oral board, you know, so there was PQS training or personal qualification standard training. And then uh, we would have an oral board and it was basically the, the guys would prep them with a murder board. And I wanted them to know every single thing. I'm like, listen, I want to know your emergency bailouts. I want to know that you know how the carbon dioxide scrubber works. I mean, like the carbon dioxide scrubber on a suit, it's the same thing. And if you don't know that lithium hydroxide, calcium hydroxide, barium hydroxide have to be wet, have to go, they change this uh, wheat carb, they combine with a wheat carbonic acid to form blah, blah, blah. If you don't know that, you don't know your suit and you need to know every single thing about that suit. Where does the oxygen come in? So you're that, that's the nuke in you, Joe. Yeah. Yes, sir. No, we had to, we had to do that kind of stuff to understand. I, yeah, I totally get it. The suits are very similar. I was at the Explorers Club and I was talking with Alan Eustace, who did the jump from space. Right. And he pulls up to me, the vice president of Google. Uh, he's got the high altitude record. He comes up to me, he goes, wait, you're the, you're the one atmosphere suit guy. Right. And I'm like, there's a whole line of people. And he's like, how did you prevent fogging? So we started to, it's the same suit. It's the same suit, except you're, you have more dexterity in your hands and you guys are cool yeah. looking. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's just shift gears a little bit. Because we have a lot to cover and we, and we could spend hours just on this topic, but so many more things to talk about. You focused your master's degree in aerospace engineering, and I found that really intriguing, given that this whole conversation has been about undersea and now all of a sudden we're out in space. So what caused that shift and then what happened next? What had happened was uh, I was at Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard doing a, a shipyard type tour as a docking officer, diving officer type person. And they said, hey, you know, we want to send you to postgraduate school. He said, uh, what type of engineering would you want? Chemical? I'm like, oh, no, no, no chemical engineering. They're like, oh, okay, um, electrical? I'm like, no, 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 I'm not an electrical engineer by age. Mechanical? I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm bored to death. What? And he's like, uh, an astronautical. And I'm like, wait, what? 
what's that last one? He's like astronautical. I'm like, what is that? He's like, uh, hold on. Let me get back to you. He gets back to me and he's like, yeah, it's the study of, uh, of astronaut engineering stuff for space stuff. And I'm like, I'll take that one. That sounds great. Right. Like <laughs> why not? boring, boring. And I probably couldn't do the chemical just because it's insanely hard. Hard. <laughs> yeah. I said, I will jump to something cool like astronautical engineering. And what you find, and this is when I met Bill Newton, what you find is that astronaut, aquanaut, same, same, only different, right? It's like, you're up here, I'm down here, I'm doing this, you're doing that, uh, you know. So similar mindset. So I actually went to the astronaut to aquanaut symposium. I got a chance to speak at it being the aquanaut side of the house. And then um, Mike Gernhardt came as, uh, or was it Mike? I think it was Mike that came. He was the probably the astronaut side of the house because he plays both roles. He's a, he's a diver and a, I, he's a stud. <laughs> I just love him. <laughs> yeah. So we eventually leave the military and instead of continuing in astronautical engineering, you get your PhD now in biomedical engineering, which is actually really an up and coming field for sure. How did your experiences prior to that shape that decision? What made you, what drove your interest in that area? We lost a bunch of guys to suicide following uh, the horrific events that they'd been through, right? So as these people are are triting, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of having a problem with it. Um, but I was about at the time when I was ready to retire and Admiral McRaven's like, Hey, I'm going to give you the best job in the world. You can come back here and work for me. And I'm like, boss, I don't think I want to do that. Now I, I just happened to be spearfishing buzzies with one of the other guys, the J three. Um, and I happened to be at Admiral McRaven's house. So it was, I was helping him move. So it wasn't like a big deal, but, uh, as I'm sitting there, he's like, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to be when you grow up? I'm like, I don't know, boss. I just don't want to do that anymore. I want to do something not that. And he's like, well, I could use your help with the whole veteran suicide thing. And I'm like, really? Hold on. You have my attention now. So now I'm like, okay. And I'm like, man, maybe we could fix this. Maybe there's something we could fix. So Admiral McRaven put me on the preservation of the force and family, which was wonderful. I got the opportunity to see firsthand what he was doing, how instrumental he was in trying to reduce the 22 a days. And then I saw the bureaucracy and I saw how we just weren't doing it the right way. Right. I, I saw that we were doing a lot of talking and we weren't doing a lot of moving. And I was like, okay, and I'm too dumb to know that I couldn't figure it out. Right. So I, I go to college and I says, Oh, I'm going to do something, not this. And I'm going to go to college and learn, learn how to fix traumatic brain injury. Well, just like my astronautical engineering degree, it really didn't work out that way. I wound up making a carbon dioxide sensor. It is what it is, right? A uh, carbon dioxide detecting sensor, which helped guys that were in the Navy anyway. So, uh, and, but I was still focusing on traumatic brain injury and that like in my classes and in what I took. So it worked out that I was able to do that. And I opened up a uh, hyperbaric oxygen center and tried to heal people that way. So is that mainly what your research is now is the the hyperbaric oxygen in the application of treating traumatic brain injury or is that just one piece It was right up until September 7th of 2001 when I got hit by a car and I was left with a traumatic brain injury an 8 millimeter hemorrhagic stroke prefrontal cortex left side and I was knocked out in my car so I wake up in the hospital. I'm like, okay, I got this. I'm a, I'm a traumatic brain injury guy. I can heal my own traumatic brain injury. I got out of the hospital seven days later and I'm trying to fly the plane while I'm assembling it, right? And my head's just not right. It's all not put together. 
I fell into a very deep depression and uh, I'm a little less ashamed nowadays to admit it, but I was considering that it, this would be the end for me. And uh, that was in September 7th. So mid-October, I'm in a deep depression and I'm like, okay, I need to check out. And I don't want my kids to see me like this. I don't want anybody that I care about to see me like this. I'm, I was crying. I was angry. I mean, really bad, stereotypical prefrontal cortex injuries. So I said, all right, if I can't fix this inside of a month, but Joe, you're going to do everything. You're not going to quit. You're not, you're going to do it for a solid month. You're going to do everything. And I did it. Everything that I could think of anything like I would drive by and I'd see the sign that said ice, 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 $5. And when I had that sign, I said, huh, I wonder if you submerge yourself in ice, you decrease peripheral perfusion. You must increase cerebral perfusion because it's the only thing outside the water. That makes physics sense. Let's do that. Okay, boom. Let's do hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Let's do neurofeedback therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, structural energetic therapy, physical therapy. So I did all this at once because I don't know how much you know, but the body does keep the score. I got struck on the left side. My left shoulder used to twinge and bother me before I went to physical therapy. Turns out that that signal comes up through the vagus nerve and it reminds you that you have a traumatic brain injury. Oh yeah, my shoulder hurts. I have a traumatic brain injury. Oh yeah, my shoulder hurts. So if you don't fix the body physically, physiologically, and psychologically simultaneously, you will not cure a traumatic brain injury because it'll just, whatever one of those three things you didn't address, it will come back and go, hey, how you doing? You remember me? So we decided to throw everything at it. Now that's what I do, a 28-day intensive outpatient protocol. And I'm happy to say that by the middle of December, everything was okay. And then by the end of December, I had a protocol that was working. And, and it really, it truly is. Now, really, my N is very small. You guys know about science. The, the number that I have is like nine right now. So, but nine lives saved is better than nine lives lost. So I know the feeling from, uh, from some of the nonprofit work we do. Does any of it relate uh, directly to what you're doing at this very moment, which is 30 feet underwater uh, off the coast of Florida? It's all the same, right? It's all astronaut, aquanaut. It's all related. I'm just, but I'm crazy, right? So, Yes. So right now I'm down here doing a whole bunch of things. And, and you know how you're, I, my life is just like this astronautical engineering degree pointed at this degree, pointed at the biomedical engineering, all that stuff culminated with this. So yeah, that's exactly where I'm at. I'm at 1.6 ATA right now, which is the pressure at which we treat traumatic brain injury at my center, because we found that you decrease the level of oxygen because oxygen is a vasoconstrictor. If it vasoconstricts, you reduce the cerebral uh, you know, blood flow, and that's not good. So you have to balance that. It has to be a happy balance of brain-derived neurotropic factor and, and vascular endothelial growth factor. So you're working all these things at the same time. So that's part of the reason why I'm down here. The other part is I'm trying to solve problems on the International Space Station for muscle loss and bone density loss. So I'm testing things like nitric oxide synthase builders here while I'm doing the resistance bands workout and I'm using a uh, cuff to basically raise NOS so that you can increase muscle growth and mitochondrial health, you know, so that they can take that and then extrapolate it. Look, as you know, it's going to take us six months to get to Mars and the prospect of having people with no bones or ability to stand when they get there and weak muscles is just not going to cut it. And not even that, how about myopia, right? Your vision's 20-20 based upon your ability to see 20 feet. 
I'm in a 15 foot long tube. So after a hundred days, we know this from submariners, the submariners, they don't let them drive right after they get out of a long deployment. Why? Because they can't see, uh, right? So it's like, well, I did not know that. Oh, well, this is standard protocol for the submarine guys. They go, no, okay, you're not driving home. <laughs> it's bad. The interesting thing, just real quick about the exercise piece, you know, if we if we exercise, we we do maintain bone density and and uh, muscle, but the, re- the exercise equipment's big. It takes a lot of volume. So trying to come up with prophylactic means of of satisfying that same need is is important because that's a small space. The space space station is huge, and we have room for that kind of equipment. Maybe going to Mars, not so much. You know. So tell us about about your stay at the Jules Undersea Facility. How long are you going to be there? What are your goals? What's a day in the life like? What what is it when you wake up in the morning? What do you do? Are you are, are you going out outside diving, or, or is it all your time spent inside? Give us the scoop on what's going on right now. So I'll be here for 100 days, and what I'm doing down here is threefold. I'm doing a whole bunch of outreach, and we're talking with kids in schools, trying to get them excited about STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, and math. And I want them to be like, hey, you can be a scientist and be cool, too. You know, it's not like you have to just be in beakers and microscopes, right? (laughs) You see? See, you get me. I knew you did, right? So if you can incentivize these kids to do something and, you know, like talking with all these fifth graders and sixth graders, it's the greatest thing in the world. The second thing is I'm talking with a bunch of my friends that are in the undersea realm, right? Ichthyologists, marine scientists. I have a sponge researcher right now, microbiologist, and we're trying to talk about preservation, protection, and rejuvenation of the marine environment, because it's important that this particular place gives us between 50 and 70% of the oxygen on our planet, and we need to take care of it. So that's just Joe's opinion. But I get to use this showcase to tell, have people who are experts in their field tell everybody about what they're doing and what they're doing to change the world. And third and final is the biomedical research aspect. So I get up in the morning, I do urine, I do saliva, I do blood samples, looking at the microscope, <laughs> sending it off, looking for brain-derived neurotropic factor, insulin growth factor, all of these little, like, oh, it's so boring. It's, it's crazy. Blood pressure, EEGs, EKGs on myself, right? Because, you know, nobody else wants to do this on me, right? So, so I do science for about, I don't know, 10 hours a day. I do like five hours of outreach uh, and then I go for like an hour swim. Thankfully, I get to do a little working out because I have the bands and uh, I've been working that uh, that uh, that compensatory thing. Uh, and then I'm testing new things like we're testing an AI for a scientist who got a contract with NASA, quote unquote. I don't know. I didn't see the contract. And it's for an artificial intelligence that's going to be a tricorder like thing. It's going to scan over your body. Uh... It's going to tell you, hey, uh, hey, look, I believe you have, uh, you know, uh, left ejection fraction is less than 25%. We suggest you start, you know, whatever. Dr. McCoy. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. You never know. Right? So, yeah, it's cool. But I get to go out every day. I get to swim around. And I do. I do because I like the ocean life, right? I get lobster that's outside my window. His name is Fred. I got all kinds of fish that I go visit. I'm looking for the elusive seahorse. Still haven't found him yet, but we will. 
So, you know, when I was staying in the Aquarius habitat, um, like you, you know, we couldn't just go straight up in case of an emergency. You have to do decompression. So we had, they had, and we were, I don't know if you're scuba diving or, or helmet diving, but we were helmet diving. And we had little cupolas underwater that were little air bubbles that were our emergency place to go in case, uh, you know, our hose got tangled or we ran out of air. Do you, what, what kind of emergency procedures do you guys have? There is one of those, but it's not something that people generally go to. Um, so I take a bottle with me. I have a come home bottle that I have that comes with me everywhere I go. It's one of these like, look, and I'm scuba and it's it's shallow. It's more shallow than yours. I mean, I think we're at the bone crushing depth of 22 feet. I mean, I've been to Aquarius. It's it's you know, it is what it is. It's small. <laughs> but at, at 22 feet, though, most people who are knowledgeable on scuba diving, you can go down to 22 feet for an hour and you don't have to do anything. You don't, probably don't even have to do a safety stop on the way up. But if you live down there for 100 days, you are now saturated with nitrogen. So if you had a appendectomy, you know, I mean, if you, there's a process you have to go through in order to come back to the surface, right? And the sad part is nobody knows that. So here I am doing their third order partial differential equations, and you're basically calculating M values on, on bone tissue saturation. Because at this point, it's not the other tissues in your body, it's the bone. It's the, it's the ones that are poorly perfused tissues. So those of bone and the cartilage, you're trying to figure out what their saturation rates are. And the answer is nobody knows and everybody's rolling dice. So, you know, we're making stuff up as we, I'm literally calculating this as we go along. But the good thing is 14, 15 days ago, I just got issued my U.S. patent. And that is on heart rate variability and how the autonomic nervous system is stressed. So I can detect decompressive stress prior to symptoms being shown. I can detect heart, I can detect hypercapnic stress. I can detect oxidative stress. So when, when the autonomic nervous system is stressed, I can detect that prior to symptomology coming on. And I proved it so much so that they gave me a patent. Is that something that a recreational diver would eventually someday, you know, just strap on? Is it, is it a small device, like a Fitbit or something you go, where it goes, hey, not only are we calculating that you're making a mistake here, your body is telling me that you're making a mistake here. <laughs> exactly. And what I've done, so it's a really teeny device at this point because it's all computer chip at this point. So, you know, my initial prototype was obviously, you know, the size of my hand, but this is like the size of a watch for crying out loud. And what I did is I put a little cell phone vibrator in it so now it goes bzz, bzz, bzz. every time you're messing up and you're going and decompressing too shallow. So it's not perfectly ready for prime time. It's just got a patent two weeks ago. So cool. Congratulations. No, thank you. Yeah, no kidding. That's a big deal. So when when is your 100 day visit over? And then what's up with you next after that? Uh, yeah, so June 9th. And when I'm done with that in September, I'm doing the zero G, uh, the zero G flight because uh you know, zero gravity airplane, right? The zero G plane. The vomit comet. Yeah, the vomit comet. My long-term goal is to be you when I grow up. <laughs> Sandra. Yeah. I really, I would love to be an astronaut, but you know what I really want to do? My long, long-term goal is to solve problems for aquanauts and astronauts. And that's on my vision board and has been there for years and years and years. But I figure if I fly in the environment one or two times, I can go, okay, now I feel this. I can do that. I can work this. But, you know, I'm trying. The experience makes a difference when you experience microgravity. It's, it's a whole nother level of understanding. Yes, ma'am. So, Joe, in the, uh, in the time we have left, tell us about you know, one memorable moment 
uh, with our audience in, in your, this amazing career you've had both in the Navy and since. What is it that really strikes you as, as something that was the most special or the most frightening or something like that? I tell you, there was a moment where my boss, like I said, I, I had mentioned it already, where my boss could have fired me. I flooded the suit and, and it was that, you know, everything comes to realization that if, if we don't do our job as leaders, oh boy, you know, like everybody says, oh, people can die. Yeah, people can die at everything. But when it's your fault, oh boy, like that shiver goes up your spine. You're just like, oh man. And I totally, it was my problem, my fault, my everything. And I was like, yep. One of the good things a good leader learns about their subordinates when they make mistakes is if their sins of commission, you know, you're out of here. I'm not going to deal with you anymore. But if it's a sin of omission, that person just learned a lot like you did that day. Uh, and you became a better leader because of it, right? As, as you described. That's exactly what he told me. Those are the words that he used. He said, I bought that you're never going to do that again. And I said, no, sir. No, sir. I am never tying the arms together. I'm never crossing the streams again. <laughs> Don't cross the streams. <laughs> that was a very inexpensive, worthy lesson. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I, I feel the same way. So. Yeah. And, and like, for me, it was just a, a shift in mindset. Like I really had it and I was in the, the man 10 P9290 keeping people alive, but oh boy, I, I changed heart a little bit and I pushed over to the dark side and I said, okay, I'm going to fail on the side of more caution where I was a little more hoo before that. I think, you know, we're almost out of time, but I, and I know Sandra's going to close this out, but I just wanted to thank you for uh, the time and attention you're giving to TBI. We're still losing people every day way too many people. And it's people like you who are going to unlock this puzzle and figure it out for us so that we can save the lives of these young men and women who have served our country so well. And so thanks, Joe, for that. Yeah. And, and we are running out of time, but I have to say, Dr. Deep Sea, Joe, we, we really have enjoyed talking with you today. And oh, we could go on for hours, but we wish you luck with your expedition. And definitely we'll be watching for your next adventure because there is definitely going to be another adventure in your future, I have no doubt. <laughs> and when there is, we'll bring you back so on the podcast. You. I would love it. I'm truly the one that's honored. I mean, to meet the two of you, it's like, oh my God, are you coming to interview me? I'm like, oh my gosh, so thank you. Thank you to your listeners for taking the time. That was Dr. Joe DeTuri, Dr. Deep Sea, who's contributing daily to a better understanding of human physiology underwater on the surface and in space. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Check us out on social media, including a short video of our Enter with Joe on TikTok. Our handle is very simple, at The Adrenaline Zone. Also, check out his book, Secrets in Depth. 